Hello and welcome to the Environmental Science Careers Podcast. I'm glad you're joining me today. My name is Julia. I'm an environmental scientist, as you might have figured. I'm also a healthy living advocator and a world explorer. If you want to find out more about what it is I do, head over to my website, udoyou.com. But for now, let's dive into today's episode. In this episode of the Environmental Science Careers podcast, I'm talking with Jose Pereira, a professor and researcher at the University of Lisbon at the Institute of Agronomy. He specialized on wildfire research and management, literally a very hot topic right now in Portugal, given its recent history of reoccurring massive wildfires. We talk about how he ended up specializing in this particular niche, as well as about the importance of public speaking and difficulties that might arise when communicating with the public about scientific results. We also touch on the significance of international collaborations and how they support different perspectives and out-of-the-box thinking. Combined with a bit of humor, this interview was actually a really fun one to do and I'm sure you will enjoy it as well. I'm sitting here today with um, Professor José Pereira from mm -hmm. the University of Lisbon. We have a class together, the fire management class of the Metro program. That's how we got to know each other. Mm -hmm. And you agreed to talk to me today, so thank you for that. Welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> I'm always starting off my um, podcast with a specific question to kind of break the ice. So... I wanted to ask you um, if like your partner or your mother or your best friend would have to describe you with three words, what would they say? Um, Absent-minded, bordering on the spaced out, um, curious and uh, occasionally annoying. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and how do you think these characteristics have helped you with your professional career? Uh, the occasionally annoying part probably hasn't helped much, <laughs> but uh, but the other two, uh, curiosity definitely. Uh, I think I think uh, many people who um, end up developing a scientific career have that have that uh, attribute that that characteristic, and. Um, Uh, I think that it may also have been tr triggered or stimulated by the fact that I, uh, for this specific domain I work on, uh, because I grew up in a in a village in the countryside, and so I was I, I grew up in contact with. It's not really a forested area that much. It's it's essentially a wine producing region, but. Um, Very typical Mediterranean mix with vineyards, orchards, olive groves, pine forests, not much eucalypts at the time, but a very diverse landscape and very stimulating. And so it was easy for a small kid's curiosity to get stimulated by natural objects and processes. And uh, but But this may just be post-facto rationalizing on my part. I don't know. Well, you I'm can not always sure. look back and then yeah. it all kind of makes sense. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. So would you say you've been interested in nature and science from a very early stage? Um, I think, I think um, yes, from a, from a relatively early stage in a more structured manner, perhaps from um, 
middle of high school from when I was about, I don't know, between 14, 15 years old. Um, I remember that one day in natural science class, the teacher spoke about, gave us a lecture on ecology and the environment. And this in a rural village in Portugal in the early 1970s was not very common. He was a, a stimulating uh, teacher. And they, I got really curious and interested. And, and uh, when I got home, uh, my parents made the usual question, so how was school today? And I commented on that. And they, they, especially my father noticed that I was enthusiastic about the lecture that we had had. And um, he bought me a book on ecology and the environment and stuff. And, and, and that was the beginning of the snowball so i can point specifically oh, to uh, to to very a very defined uh, event or set of events that uh, initially stimulated my interest in these issues interesting so when you finished high school you were sure you wanted to um, pursue well when i when i finished high school i was interested in the in that uh, in in the topic and um, but it was not very easy to get advice on uh, specifically what course to, because I was not specifically interested in forestry. I was interested in environmental issues in general. But again, I mean, it was by chance. My mother was a doctor, and uh, when she was a student in the mid nineteen fifties. In, in, at university in Coimbra, the, the medical program still had a course on botany. Doctors still had to study plants. And, um, uh, she, uh, and my father, he, he also knew him. They were friends with that much older professor who, uh, was starting, uh, an environmental program at the university, uh, I don't know if it was an environmental engineering degree or something like that. And, uh, and they called him and asked if we could come and chat with him about my interests and what he would recommend. And he said, well, the course I'm creating is just starting, so I would not recommend this. I'm not sure it's going to work out so well. But um, he said Coimbra, which was the nearest place um, their biology, they only care about molecular biology and some very specific mechanisms, so I don't think that's the scale you're interested in. But in Lisbon, at the School of Agriculture, in the forestry department, there is this professor who um, just got his, or recently got his PhD in the United States. He's very smart. He works primarily on ecology with a quantitative outlook. You may, you may like that. And, um, then I, my, I think my parents had secretly hoped that I went into medical school, uh, but never put any pressure on me. It was something that I, got the impression that that would be their preference, but they never tried to deviate me one centimeter from, from my path. And uh, so I came to Lisbon, came here, and enjoyed the degree and stayed.
until now. And this was in 1977 that I came here for the first time so as a student. Here. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> it is a very nice place, I agree. Um, but you've also spent some time in the US. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Yes, after, um, after finishing my degree here, uh, an older professor, he was getting close to retirement, um, who taught us forest protection. He was a forest entomologist primarily, but so he, he, taught, he taught the course on forest pathology and um, um, also on wildfires and forest pests and diseases and wildfires. And he also taught a course on nature conservation, uh, protected areas and that kind of stuff. And I, those were topics I really enjoyed. And since I had good grades, he uh, invited me to be his um, assistant. And so I started working here at the school, yet without a PhD, for a couple of years with this older professor, who in the 1950s or something had created Portuguese, Portugal's first environmental organization, um, the League for Nature Conservation. And so I worked with him for a couple of years and then I applied for a grant to uh, go do my PhD in the United States. I got accepted at a few different universities and ended up choosing the University of Arizona. And so I went to the Southwest mm -hmm. where it's nice and hot and dry, really a desert environment, close to the Mexico border. So it was a very interesting place, a good school of natural resources. And um, so I, I, I spent four years there and they were very formative, very uh, interesting and um, uh, pleasurable too. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed the, the time I spent there. Yeah, compared to the system here in Portugal and the system in the US, like university device, What's the main difference, or like? The oh, there are there are many there are many differences um, here at the time, especially we were very much enclosed in this microcosmos that is the School of Agriculture here on this campus, separated from the rest of the university, and uh, in there it was really a U.S. campus environment with I don't know forty thousand students. Uh, lots and lots of foreign students from all over the world, uh, very high scientific level, excellent facilities, and uh, I think probably the most strikingly different thing was the degree of interdisciplinarity and multidisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. I did my master's degree also there, and I was supervised by a professor of systems engineering. And for my PhD, the person who taught me the most, especially on methodological aspects, was an archaeologist mm -hmm. who worked with um, uh, GIS at the time already to try and determine that he was interested in using um, digital spatial data to determine where he was more likely to find 
um, remains of old Indian villages or artifacts. So he was interested in identifying locations in the landscape that were likely to have been inhabited in the past and where archaeological remains might be found. And so that was based on topographic features, proximity to rivers, um, exposure relatively to the sun and soils and, you know, whatever. And um, that is a type of methodologies and um, data sets and lines of reasoning that you also apply if you want to model habitats for animals or plants or whatever, yeah. or if you want to model things like fire risk, essential conceptually they're and methodologically they're very similar. So uh, my my PhD essentially focus was on habitat modeling, which I learned primarily from an archaeologist and a landscape architect, <laughs> and that I ended up now applying to fire risk and related issues in Portugal. So the, that, that type of exposure, I mean, the, the, the most influential people in my PhD training, like as being a forester, were an archaeologist, a systems engineer, and a landscape architect. It kind of sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they walk into a bar. <laughs> so, um, nice, yeah. My, my son tells a meta joke of that kind. He says, um, a priest, an iman, and a rabbi walk into a bar, and the barman goes, what is this, a joke? <laughs> <laughs> so, what kind of skills would you say are important, maybe compared to how it was when you did your PhD, mm -hmm. and how it is now? Or masters doesn't matter mm -hmm, what kind of mm -hmm, degree, but mm -hmm. like a skill set for a student to have. Well, um, I think the, the the main difference is how prevalent and how important having good programming skills became. Even if the um, scientific training and background still needs to be the same. Uh, for example, statistics, mathematics, uh, operations, research, all of those quantitative techniques. Um, uh, students nowadays have a immensely larger range of methods and techniques and, and what was cutting edge when I was doing my work 35 years ago, now it's absolutely trivial and I occasionally have undergraduate students or at least master's students uh, do do similar types of, of analysis and so um, I mean that's also clearly also strongly motivated by another aspect which is the uh, immense increase in the availability of data especially for someone who works with GIS and remote sensing and the um, also the, the the huge progress in um, the computational capabilities of, of computers we have access to. And so the, the, the skills required to deal with a great variety of data sets, very, very large data sets, and to analyze and process them um, quantitatively requires uh, uh, not necessarily a brand new set of skills, but a much greatly developed 
set of skills along these lines than than 35 years ago when I was when I was starting to do that type that type of work. Um, but still, you have to the 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 I think the more critical components are timeless, and I think they are curiosity and careful, rigorous thought. I remember that whenever we had a practical lab with my GIS professor, with whom I remain friends, um, he used to say, turn on your brain before you turn on your computer, <laughs> in a sergeant's voice. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's very sound advice that I remember to this day. Yeah, but it's true because sometimes you try to rely too much on the techniques. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and, and you lose track of the objective and the strategy yeah. and because the, the technology is so powerful and sometimes even so attractive that you may lose track of and confuse means with ends. Yeah, yeah. In our class for the fire management, mm-hmm. um, we focused on presenting, on mm-hmm. developing, mm-hmm. like, say, every week or every two weeks mm-hmm. a presentation in the group. Um, why did you choose this specific set of... This format. format yeah. This format. Because I think um, there is not enough of it, um, in, in, um, at least in here, in this program. And, um, and I think it's um, very helpful and it's an opportunity to, at the same time that I teach you contents, uh, to also expose you to this need of um, getting a set of information, summarizing, reflecting about it and presenting it in public. Uh, I think um, that is as important and it has probably grown as much in importance um, as the technological skills, the, 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 the computer competence and the programming skills and all of that, because there is so much generic public interest in environmental issues and environmental controversies. And I don't even need to mention people with orange hair to um, uh, refer <laughs> to refer to 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 these controversies and uh, and uh, the need for people in this domain to be able to communicate their findings clearly and convincingly. Uh, so that's that's an important uh, aspect of why I chose that format. The other one is that people come from students come from although it's a small class come from very different places, very different uh, educational systems, different academic backgrounds, and it would be nearly impossible in a single semester, I think, to teach uh, a, a very rigidly formatted uh, course. And um, and so um, I've since this this course started some I don't know eight or eight years ago or something like that that we have followed this format and we find that its flexibility is helpful um, that um, and, and students react quite well we have we because I used to co-teach this class until recently but I've never found uh, students who really were so shy that mm. they had difficulties presenting in public. In some cases, even despite difficulties with English, 
but people make an effort and uh, like this year for example there's a there's a very broad range of uh, familiarity and fluency in English but people do a good job I mean and and, and in your specific case you have also paired up with uh, in a way that facilitates life for the for the uh, for the students who are who are not as fluent in English and I think it has yeah to support each other. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so would you say that as a scientist, the way you present your research is as, as important as um, the way you do it? Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say as important. I wouldn't put it on a pair basis, but I think it's, it's very important. Mm. And, um, and, and, and my... Uh, awareness uh, to the to the need to communicate, uh, to speak and to communicate and try to do it rigorously and convincingly, stems also very much from the fact that I work on wildfires, which is a major uh, hazard in Portugal. We've had very recent and dramatic events with fires wildfires, many people getting killed and hundreds of houses getting burned. And so it's very much in the under public scrutiny. And so I'm often invited to uh, go to uh, TV programs and uh, uh, or get interviewed by newspapers. And um, it's it's um, it really makes you aware of the gap that there is between technical kind of coded, sometimes almost encrypted language of of the narrow scientific mm -hmm. domains, and how you need to communicate with the uh, with the public, and um, uh, even though I've been doing it for a long time, it's 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 not completely automatic. I sometimes have to uh, stop myself from starting to go on a very convoluted line of reasoning that would be perfectly acceptable if we're talking among colleagues or using language that to me is that I use on a daily basis with my colleagues and my collaborators. But I need to hit the switch and say, okay, different mode. Get normal now. Be a normal person, and uh, and uh, but still, the difficulty is that you have to do that without losing the rigor of what you're trying to to say. And and the other aspect is that is um, perhaps particularly difficult is to try to convey um, research findings that sometimes are counterintuitive, go against what public opinion thinks. And, um, of, and, 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 and trying to communicate that while avo avoiding infantilizing your audience, not, not treat them as children not or them the stupid. That, they, yeah, yeah. Um, that is not only unfair, but <clears throat> it totally destroys the effectiveness of your attempt to communicate. So um, all of that has also 
uh, really sharpened my awareness of the importance of uh, communication and also because of, again, because of dealing with the topic of wildfires, I also often have to communicate with another group of important stakeholders in this process, which are politicians. Right. And, uh, and um, that's again a, a slightly different format. It's not the general public, it's not the scientific community. Um, there are people who think in a different way and uh, they're perhaps the ones that inevitably because of the way they think and they functioning, I'm, I'm always wondering, I'm saying this, what are they reading into what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Am I saying A and if it's a left-wing politician, he's hearing B and if it's a conservative politician, he's understanding C, am I navigating, is my message going through or is it being uh, filtered through their specific way of looking at the world? And um, most of the times I don't know. Mm. After the interaction has occurred, I, I, I don't know if I was effective or not. So when occasionally people give me feedback, it's very helpful saying, for example, oh, you were very clear, it, it seemed like a hard concept, but you, we got it. Mm -hmm. Or, what were you talking about? Who do you think you're talking to? I have no clue what you tried to say. But so either way, it's, it's very helpful. Of course, I'm more pleased when I was effective and understood, but it's not necessarily always the case. Can you think of any example where you were misunderstood and you didn't even realize it? Not necessarily necessarily with politicians, but in trying to communicate a scientific message. Um, yes, I think that uh, one of the more controversial topics where there is that gap between what uh, the public in general think and uh, what we know uh, from uh, from research results is the fire causes. Public opinion thinks that it's mostly criminal activity, people with uh, intent on causing damage and destroying and sometimes even organized crimes, terrorist networks and uh, all sorts of conspiracy theory approaches to the to the issue, which are quite understandable because people are worried, scared, concerned. Uh, and, and there is this, I think, natural tendency to think that if someone has a very dramatic large-scale consequence, it cannot be caused by simple and small reasons. It must have been planned, organized, and, and so there are all of these conspiracy theories around the causes of fires. And when I try to demystify that, some, sometimes people think I'm saying there is no criminal activity whatsoever, there is no arson, it's just all accidents. And um, that's, that's not what I'm trying to say, but that's a, a common misconception. And, and because... Uh, again, in this topic, um, people's attitudes tend to become a bit radicalized and people start thinking black and white. And so if I'm saying that criminal causes are not as important as public opinion thinks, people here, they don't exist. Mm -hmm.
There is no criminality. And uh, that's that's just an, an example. But um, there are also good, uh, I think, the opposite examples like this year, we had a big fire in, in Monchique in the southwest of Portugal. And I was on the, on this TV show and I would, they asked me to comment on how the fire had developed and what I thought. And um, I had visited the burnt area recently and I had spoken with people who had been involved in the firefighting, had looked at lots of satellite images. And I was trying to explain that I thought that the fire, the strategy to try and contain the fire had not been the best one in, in my opinion. And uh, because I thought that the firefighters had uh, made excessive use of water, they had tried to attack the most intense, faster spreading parts of the fire, which were too intense to be contained by whatever means. And, and I realized that my explanation was getting too long and too complicated. And uh, the journalist interviewing me, her eyes were starting to glaze. It was not coming through. And I said, well, what I mean, and, and my opinion was what they should have done is to would have been to remove fuels ahead of the fire getting to certain low strategic locations. They should have preventively burned them or bulldozed them, create uh, gaps in the landscape where um, essentially without fuels so that the fire would get there and stop. Dumping water on the fire wouldn't work. You have to remove the fuels. And then I thought, well, what I'm trying to say is that this is not the kind, the kind of fire you try to drown. It's the kind of fire you starve. Nice. <laughs> and she's, oh, okay, so that's what you were trying to say. <laughs> yes, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but uh, I mean, it's, it's not easy. Uh, they call you and half an hour later you have to be in a different mode and you switched from uh, scientist mode where you were discussing some uh, sophisticated statistical technique with a PhD student and half an hour later you're in a studio trying to explain it to your aunt. And uh, it's, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I guess it's all also a matter of practice, mm -hmm. getting used to yes. the settings. Yes, yes. Yes. So do you have any tips how students can acquire better presentation skills besides practicing a lot? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you're not able to practice as much as you would like to in like a setting where there is lots of listeners, I guess. Yeah. Well, um I I don't think I I I'm able of advising uh on that. I think it, uh, it there's a lot of innate personality type um, component to that uh, to that ability and then uh, experience and I grew up in Portugal in I was a teenager here in the mid-1970s so during the period when when the uh, right-wing dictatorship regime fell and Portugal became a democracy in in 1974 when I was 15 and so at At 15, I was starting to get involved in political debate, sometimes public political debate, and then at the university. And so uh, I've, I've been exposed to that type of uh, activity and communication for so long that I've lost track of how that process mm -hmm. uh, developed. I, I, I love reading and I read a lot and I think that also enriches 
your ability to look at the problem from someone else's perspective. And I think that may be the key skill. I, I, I'm not able to tell you how you acquire it, mm. but I think it's, it's, it's key. It's absolutely essential both to be an effective teacher and to do this communication or contribute to public understanding of science, communication scientific results, which is to look at the perspective from <clears throat> look at the problem from the perspective from someone else's mm -hmm. perspective and someone else who does not have the entire the, the whole background that you have on on the subject you cannot engage in an explanation that assumes people know lots of concepts that they don't know so you have to um shift gear shift mode um sometimes think quite orthogonally to what you would normally using approaching the the problem in a in a scientific context and uh I, 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 that is that is quite difficult and I, I i'm clearly aware that i sometimes can do it and sometimes doesn't work as well even in class and it's it's not uncommon for me to uh, teach something in 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 class some concept i try to place myself in the position of the students with the type of background and with the capabilities they have to approach the the concept that I'm discussing and I feel like I did a good job and then I go home and I say, nah, I should have, this is how I should have presented it. And so the following class, I start by saying, well, remember that stuff, I, you guys probably didn't get it and what? About, let's try it this way. And, and, and sometimes is helpful and other times they said no you don't need to be we we have got it the first time and 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 i wasn't aware so it's um uh it's not something that becomes completely automatic and that you you cannot can never take for granted that you communicate it effectively i guess it all comes back also to curiosity and to try yeah. to yeah Put yourself in another person's perspective and to try to learn in a different way. But but you know, even even if you're not trying to communicate with anyone, even if you're just trying to understand the problem for your own sake, uh, approaching it from different angles, from different perspectives, is is also very very useful. And sometimes that's what makes things click. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not it's not just for communicating with others. It's for your internal thinking, reasoning mechanisms. That I, I try to practice that as as much as I can. Mm. Yeah, good tip. I like it. <laughs> so looking back at your career, mm -hmm. um, was there a specific point where you said, "Okay, wildfire management, fire in general, is something that I'm." Very uh, passionate about, and I want to pursue more. Uh, well, um, I think it was. I think it was um, a combination of interest and need and opportunity. Mm. Because, like I said, uh, that uh, uh, professor with whom I started working here, he taught us a forest protection course that included uh, wildfire component and the problem was getting more and more important and he called our attention to that but during my phd i focused more on methodological and technological aspects and i didn't deal with with wildfires 
But then when I got back to Portugal, the problem was becoming increasingly more important. And I was assigned the duty of teaching that course. So I had to, I had to consolidate my, with also with stuff that I had studied during my PhD in the US. I had to, and the, that professor had retired in the meantime. So I was given the task of reorganizing that, uh, that course, teaching it on, on my own and, um, start developing a small research program on the, on the topic. And so I was very pleased to have that opportunity, um, very early in my career, structuring a course and starting to develop a, uh, a tiny research program or line on that topic. And uh, then I was also stimulated because at the time there was a real need for information, uh, even from government agencies who uh, were starting to feel the need of, for example, getting um, more reliable countrywide systematic information on where fires were occurring and uh, since we there weren't that many people at the time who could analyze and process and classify and extract information from satellite images we got approached by the forest service to if we could uh, do that for them systematically and then later after we had accumulated a few years of uh, countrywide burned area maps that we had done in my small laboratory, if we could use that information to develop a fire risk map for operational use by the Forest Service. And so I started together with my collaborators, realizing that we were not just doing it for academic purposes and because we had to publish papers and research on some topic or other, but there was a uh, uh, recognition of the need and an interest in in our skills and the concepts that we were developing and so um i think that really consolidated my interest and and showed me and my small group of collaborators that it was an area worthwhile pursuing and then it acquired also an, another dimension and a very interesting one that we continue to work on which is, I don't remember the exact details, but at some point in the early 1990s, I was invited to a meeting with a person who directed a global vegetation monitoring uh, laboratory at the European Community Joint Research Center in Northern Italy. And I don't know who invited me to that meeting, but I attended. He gave a very, very interesting uh, presentation. And uh, I asked some questions. We discussed. They were, they were very focused on tropical vegetation, tropical deforestation, tropical savanna burning and, and, and those types of topics. And I was, my experience was much more on temperate regions in the U.S. and here in Portugal. But the, the conversation was interesting and uh, some time later, 
Uh, he called me and asked if I would be interested in coming spend some time at his laboratory. At the time, I was going back to the United States to 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 be to be a, to spend a semester as a visiting scientist, and I couldn't accept that invitation right away. But a couple of years later, uh, he invited me again, and I went there, and I spent very profitable, very um, uh, enriching semester at. Uh, at that uh, research center in uh, in northern Italy, and uh, that got me started. That that got me got my work started on tropical fires. Um, and uh, while I was there, I had to go present some of my work and some of the work by other researchers in the unit to the Brazilian Space Research Institute because I spoke Portuguese so was the more right. obvious person to 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 do that and um so I got involved in doing research on fires in Africa and then to some extent in Brazil uh, then later and also with in collaboration with that um, European Joint Research Center team, we went to Australia about 20 years ago and started a collaboration that is still going on. And so presently I have a Brazilian researcher as a visiting scientist in my group, my collaborator uh, who just got hired as, a, as a, an assistant professor here. João Silva just spent a couple of weeks in Australia with that uh, research team we continue to work with. Uh, last year I was in Mozambique uh, doing uh, field work related to a fire risk assessment study that we are doing funded by the World Bank related to investments they have on eucalypt plantations there. And, uh, and so that's another dimension that we have and that is also very interesting and useful for us because there is a, an exchange of ideas and concepts and, and uh, different types of expertise from doing this more regional work focused on Europe and Southern Europe and uh, uh, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French, British, Greek uh, research teams. And then we also have this uh, extra European uh, dimension to to our uh, research with uh, the Americans, the Brazilians, the Australians and their excellent quality research teams and we all learn a lot and uh, we also uh, our our again that issue of different perspectives if I have thought and looked only at fire issues from a southwestern European perspective, I'm sure I would think differently about the problem than after having seen uh, fires in the Brazilian savanna, in Australia, in the Namibian edge of the desert, and uh, that really that really uh, gives you a much broader uh, awareness of the of the topic, and we sometimes there's kind of an import export mm -hmm. trade of ideas and concepts between these two, uh, let's say geographical scales from regional to to global, yeah. and of course we all always enjoy the opportunity of going do some field work in uh, some of these really nice places. Yeah, I'm sure it sounds sounds very nice because <laughs> I feel like. 
field work. I mean, I love field work. Like I've done some and I would love to do some more. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it gets cut a little too short. I feel like mm -hmm. when you're mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. university in academia yeah. and you have to deal with a lot of yeah. bureaucracy as well and funding and stuff. Yeah. So you don't get to yeah. spend too much time in the field. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, especially as I get older and get assigned more administrative duties and coordination duties and stuff, the time I have available for that part of the work decreases, which is, I mean, it's the natural progression of things, but, uh, but I miss the opportunity to do more of, more of that too. And so, but I still have the, contacts and the uh, networking and so I try to send my get my students involved in in that and uh, another thing that in one way I'm sorry that that has to happen but in another way it's perfectly natural and it has it, it has also huge benefits uh, people that uh, got trained in my laboratory have gone to many different places I'm thinking one of them is now at that European Community uh, Joint Research Center where I worked. He's now working there full time. Another of my students is former students, alumni from my laboratory, is at um, Oregon State University. Another one uh, did her PhD in Australia, uh, got married to an Australian and now works at a uh, university in Darwin in the tropical savannas of northern Australia. Uh, another one is in now has a lecturer position at the University in Wales. So it's it's on, on the one hand it's a pity to see the country lose such highly skilled and talented people, but I think it's also beneficial for networking purposes and uh, that's the way the scientific community works. It's characterized by very high levels of mobility and the fact that these institutions are getting interested in our graduates, it's also a good indication that this program is doing at least some things mm. right, not all, of course, <laughs> but uh, but it's I I'm I'm also pleased by by that. Yeah, you can always come back. Mm -hmm. like you mm -hmm. went to the, mm -hmm. to the states and then exactly you exactly came back here, exactly so exactly maybe some acquire some different perspectives yeah. somewhere else. And yeah, bring yeah, back. and and then I I was also visiting scientists in the states a few years after my PhD. I was a visiting scientist, a scientist at that um, European Community Research Center. Um, so, I mean, mobility is a big part of this profession. And okay, you get to travel, you get to see nice places, yeah. you get to yeah. meet fascinating people. So, I think that's a perfect end to our okay. discussion or talk. Thank you. And it was a pleasure. And yes, a pleasure for me too. To be in your class. Oh, thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you very much. And that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to find out more about me and my career, or if you're interested in healthy living tips, study hacks, fitness, plant-based simple recipes, or travel experiences, then head over to my website, youdoyou.com. The show notes for this episode 
for previous and all future episodes where a link to whatever is mentioned in the podcast can also be found there. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe. It also would be really great if you could leave a review or share it on your social media platform of choice because this will help the podcast to grow and I will be able to share this knowledge with even more people. Until next time. 